Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 tonight. Hopefully you brought a Bible. Super excited to continue in our literally two-semester-long journey through the book of Hebrews. And I know that it is uh, midterm week, and I really appreciate you all still making it out tonight. Um, I believe that God has incredible things to do through this text um, in our lives. And I don't know if Andrew already did this, but I always think it's really important, um, especially if you know someone is back studying or doing homework tonight, just if you notice them, text them and let them know they're missed. Um, it's really important, I think, to um, let people know that we want them here, that when they're not here, they're missed. And so if you recognize someone or someone told you they're studying, let's make sure they know that they are loved here on Tuesday nights. Um, if you need a title for your notes, the title of the sermon this evening is The Source of Eternal Salvation. The Source of of eternal salvation. And what happens in this text and what you're going to continue to see in the book of Hebrews is we get another angle of the glory of the gospel in this passage. Namely, the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal source or the source of our eternal salvation. Now, here's the dangerous part when we talk about things that you might already know especially if you've been following Christ for a while. It's so easy to let a phrase like that, Jesus Christ is the source of our eternal salvation, to turn cold and distant, isn't it? Like, the fact that I said that should already be, like, blowing your minds, right? That their eternal salvation is here, that the salvation itself is eternal, that there's a source of it, which means we can know it, we can have it, and yet... In our weakness, in our sin, in our busyness with the fog of whatever, it is so easy for us to be distracted, disengaged from things that ultimately matter the most. And so hopefully what happens tonight is as you see another passage about how Jesus and his, is a made-up word, his high priestness, I don't know if that's a word, I'm assuming it's not, um, but as we see it again, it is going to show us that part of his high priestness is becoming the source of eternal salvation for us. And so, a challenge once again. This is going to go back into the Old Testament, show us some things, and then show us ultimately how it points to Christ. And our challenge is to not let the Old Testament stories and ideas turn us off from seeing the full beauty of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament gives us a fuller picture of Jesus and his salvation. And so, we are going to get the text in front of us, Then we're going to walk through it. It's going to be some deep doctrinal things tonight because I think you need to see the beauty of theology in this text. And then we're going to land with a celebration of the gospel, thinking through what might it look like for us to live as people who follow this great high priest in his kingdom. And so that's where we're aiming. We want to see it all, see the doctrine, let it get in our hearts that it might overflow and that we would live out what it looks like to be in this kingdom. And I'll say a few things. I heard Andrew mention just the, the fact that at Fall Retreat it was 
2 Corinthians 4 from like 17 different angles. And something that I have loved about God's word and I'm overwhelmed with even tonight is how much more there is to know about our God. Don't you love it? Like we can know him and you're invited into that. Like tonight is not just a Bible speech. This is God speaking. He is in us if you're in Christ and he is among us. We get to commune with him. And so, That's our aim. It's going to be incredible. So let's look at verses 1 through 10, all right? Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. Let's read it together. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, we're going to get there. Melchizedek, what's going on with that? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, help us see the beauty of Jesus as our high priest tonight. Father, we just want to praise you that you have made a way into eternal salvation through your son. And so, God, we need your help. Um, We want to see more of his beauty and power in these 10 verses tonight. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, verse by verse, here we go. Verse 1 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so what we're getting ready to see here already is more content on the nature of of the high priest in the Old Testament. And in doing that, it's going to show us how much better Jesus is as the fulfillment of that role. And if you've been paying attention in the book of Hebrews, you've already seen this twice. The first one is in Hebrews 2. Had this on the screen. You can flip back if you want as well. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Talking about Jesus. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then again, in our passage last week, if you remember, 14 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who was passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we already have these key high priest passages in place that would give us context and force of another thing that we're going to learn about the nature of high priest as it pertains to Jesus. And so in Hebrews 2, in the Hebrews 2 high priest passage, we saw the idea that he was, quote, made like us, meaning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh. And may we never get bored of that. We should be in awe of the implications of the God, God the Son, putting on flesh for us. 
And one of those implications are that he might become, as we saw in Hebrews 2, a faithful and merciful high priest in making sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus Christ was not only the priest, he was also the sacrifice for us. And not only that, the passage says that he was tempted like we are. He went head on into the brokenness of our sinful world and prevailed, which means he is able to help you in your fight against temptation because he understands. And then Hebrews 4 continued this idea, says we have a great high priest. He passed through the heavens. We reminded ourselves this means that we have an advocate in heaven on the throne of God. A human is in heaven, one of us, God the Son. And we learned that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, that he was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. And remember, we talked about this, the fact that we know that Jesus was perfect, he's God, and so we were like, well, how can, you know, how can the temptation really be real, right? It's like, well, he was God, he's perfect. But if you recall, we thought about this. Every time we're tempted, the moment that we give in to the sin, the temptation is over, right? If you battle, 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 fall, You've given, you've given in to the, to the sin. Temptation is over. But Jesus Christ, because he was sinless, actually felt the full force of temptation in the world. Think about it. He never gave in. Therefore, he felt all that the enemy had to throw at him. Remember, we looked at Matthew 4 to see that narrative. He experienced the full force of it, but never gave in. This means, because he is in us, we can have the power and fight in our fight against sin and temptation. This is worth rehearsing. Jesus Christ was and is perfect and did not have a sin nature. And so he wasn't tempted by his own sinful desires like we are, because he is God and God cannot sin, but he was tempted from the outside, from the enemy, by all that the world had to offer and prevailed. And now I'm going to be honest, this is something that we need to wrestle with, and I would love to talk to you about that more in depth, which is a good time for me to plug something new tonight. Um, If you have questions about anything, something I've said, something in your own life, something you need to talk about, I'm going to float back in the overflow room where we used to do snacks. Now we can all go downstairs. And I'm going to be in there um, just for a little bit. And so if you want to come talk or ask questions or anything like that, if I don't know the answer, I will hopefully help you find someone who does. But I want that to be a place where you can kind of come get prayer or help. And so if one of those things is you want to talk about how in the world is Jesus Christ perfect but also tempted in every way we are, we can talk more about that. There's been a lot of ink spilled by theologians, both dead and alive, to help us understand. Suffice to say, it is clear a few things. It is clear that in your fight for holiness, it is possible to be tempted and not sin, because Jesus was, even though he couldn't have sinned because of his perfect nature. It's still good news for us because he was and is perfect for us in our behalf, and it points us toward the one day where we actually won't be able to sin either. Here's what this means for you. Really important. I see this all the time in people's battle for holiness. It's so easy to get crippled in guilt when you feel temptation, yet choose obedience. You need to understand, you won't have perfect desires this side of glory. You won't have a perfect will. But if you're in a battle of temptation, yet choose holiness, not sin, that is cause to celebrate. You don't have to feel additional guilt because of the presence of temptation. What matters is in the moment of testing, what you choose. And so that day isn't coming until we receive our resurrected bodies. But for now, to understand this, our high priest is understanding, sympathetic, because he felt temptation in our place. 
And so you need to understand this. These realities matter for you. If you're in Christ, you should want to put sin to death in your soul. And you should not be crippled when God shows you more of your sin. That's a good thing. It's showing you more things that are killing your joy that by the Spirit and by the Word, you can put to death to experience more of God. So important. But we're going to have to just pause there and punt to the back room if you want to talk more because we are not even really past the first verse. So let's keep going. Okay, Hebrews 5.1. With those in place, let's see the next part of this. For, for every high priest chosen from among men. This is a reminder that the author of Hebrews is making a real commentary on the nature of the priesthood in the Old Covenant. Exodus 28.1. This is a little tiny verse to show you this. There's a whole lot more about this in the Old Covenant. But just so you can see this, God's talking to Israel and saying, Then bring near to, to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So here's where it starts. In the Old Covenant, in your Old Testament, this priestly line is established as coming from the Levites. Now, I know this is a lot, but I want you to push in. There's a, a line called the Levites where the priests are going to come from. And even that is meant to point us to the forever line that Jesus would come from. And so we have to ask, they're chosen from among men, these priests of the Old Covenant, to do what? Next part of the verse is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, two things, to offer gifts and, to, and sacrifices for sins. And so these priests acted on behalf of men in relation to God and functioned as a go-between between a holy God and a sinful man. This should be reminding you just how distant God is from us, that he is holy. Sacrifice needed to be made for us to be able to be in his presence. And so there's two functions mentioned here of these, of these priests. Number one, offer gifts, so worship or praise to God because God deserved that from his people. And then number two, and probably most primarily that people think about, are sacrifices for sin, showing the seriousness of sin and the glory of forgiveness that's available in Christ. And of course, in the Old Covenant, these sacrifices, these animals that they were slaughtering, pointed ahead to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. But the point was clear. God is holy, you are not. Sin deserves death. The altar was a bloody mess to remind the people we deserve to die. Unless God is merciful and shows us grace, we have no chance. And so remember, even these functions point us toward the great high priest Jesus, whose entire life was a sacrifice of praise and for our sin that permanently brought us into fellowship with God. And by extension, it's a key part I want you to get tonight. So much means so much for your personal ministry. Part of our job in the kingdom of Jesus, if you're in Christ, is to be a priest. Now, we're not going to sacrifice animals. There's no uh, lambs downstairs that we're going to go slaughter tonight, okay? I'm not going to do that. But the new covenant makes it clear. We have a priestly role, every one of us in Christ, to be priests in this kingdom to offer gifts of worship with our lives and repent in light of the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross and resurrection. And so I want you to have these dual lenses on when you're reading about the priesthood. It all points to Jesus, our great high priest, but also by extension of that, if you're in Christ, there is something to be said about the way that we live as priests as we watch the priesthood in the Old Covenant. 
Um, Paul picks up on this in a few places, but I love the um, Romans 15, 16. He talks about the, his priestly service of the gospel of God. So even in the New Covenant, Paul's writing to the church in Rome and saying, my priestly service, there's something to be learned from the priesthood. So, verse two, back to the Old Testament priests a little bit more. He says, he can deal gently, talking about the, high pri- the uh, priests, with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So what do we learn? These high priests were beset with weaknesses. And in their case, and unlike Jesus, they had a sin nature. And godly high priests who loved God and loved his people were able to deal gently with their people. Do you see that? They can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. And so this is where it lands in your court for a second. In your own battle with sin and weakness, it should make you more humble and more patient with others who are ignorant and wayward. It should. You should be so aware of your own sin that the sin and weakness of other people doesn't make you harsh and mean and just hardened toward them. You're able to deal gently. If your pursuit of holiness makes you more annoyed with people who are less holy than you, then you aren't really becoming more holy. Get asked, don't you see your own ignorance? Are you aware of the things that you don't know? Don't you see your own impulse toward rebellion? So I want to just ask, can you imagine a ministry marked by this type of gentleness with people? That when ignorant and wayward come into this place or around our tables or in your D group, your community group, your weekend hangouts, whatever, that they're put at ease because they understand that we are humble and gentle. Now, something that I say a lot in my house right now is, Duke, be gentle all the time. I feel like all I say is, Duke, use your words and Duke, be gentle. And today, um, at breakfast this morning, Duke and Jack, my two sons, were banging their forks as loud as they possibly could just on the table. I don't know what happened. I, don't, I went away for like a second, and all of a sudden this was pandemonium was happening. And I came in, and I said, guys, stop. Be gentle with the forks. And they started slowing down a little bit. They were being a little more gentle. And at some point, they started banging them again really hard. I literally looked at Duke and just said, Duke, do you even know what gentle means? Which is a really weird thing to ask a three-year-old. But I was like, do you even know what this means? And he said, when playing, no hitting. Like, honestly, that's pretty good. But I say that to say this, that whereas we're not, you know, apply that, okay, when we're playing together as a ministry, no hitting. But don't you love the thought of when we can be a place that when people come and share their burdens with us, they're not coming scared because of what they're afraid they might get as a reaction, but instead they are dealt with gently. We're going to get here at some point, but don't you already see the beautiful picture of Jesus happening here? That in the Gospels, when we learn about the heart of Jesus, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. It's a beautiful thing. But clearly, already in verse 2, what we see is these Old Testament high priests weren't it, because even the best of them were beset with weakness in a sin nature. Look at verse 3. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So because of the fact that he's beset with weakness and a sin nature, they had to offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but for their own sin. One more reason showing this priesthood could never permanently bring people back to a fully restored relationship with God. It should make us long for Jesus and be thankful that he has done this for us. Verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So we get one more piece of insight into the old covenant priesthood. God called them to it, and it was an honor. And so we're reminded once again of our Old Testament history when God called Aaron, as we saw in Exodus 28. Main idea, this was God's doing. And so I want to give a summary of priesthood just before we turn to Christ here in verse 5. Um, the point of this, even back whenever God was orchestrating this in history, was to prepare the way for and point to Jesus Christ as the perfect and final priest. So put your gospel lenses on as we read this summary and start to make connections in your own soul and mind of how Jesus is the true and better of these realities of the priesthood. All right, work with me here. So, chosen among men, acts on behalf of men to God, offers gifts of worship, offers sacrifices to sin, deals gently with the ignorant and weak and wayward, sinful and needed save themselves, that's different, and called by God to the honor of priesthood. So all these things are meant to show you the glory of Jesus and his priesthood and be shadows and types of what it might look like to live in the kingdom of God. The whole book of Hebrews showing us, especially this section, this idea. So next five verses are gonna show us what it looks like. This is really exciting. All right, here we go. Verses five and six. Another use of the Old Testament to paint a portrait of Jesus for you. Let's look at verse five together. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, watch the logic here. Just like the high priest did not take the honor for themselves, notice Christ did not exalt himself either already showing us the great humility that the eternal Son of God has. And then, you see, your Bible hopefully has like uh, little quotes there um, in verse 5. It says, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what's happening there in that quote is he's actually quoting Psalm 2-7. And if you were paying attention in week one, I know it was right after Wow Week, so maybe you weren't, but he's already quoted Psalm 2 to paint a picture of Jesus for us. He is showing in this psalm that the eternal, there's an eternal kingdom and the eternal king of God. And he's saying that king is Jesus. So you should read all of Psalm 2, but in case you're not going to do that right now, which you probably won't because we're in a sermon. But I want to show you a few of the realities here to put some weight behind this quote. In Psalm 2, what we see are the kingdoms of the earth are going to, are going to try to destroy the anointed one of God. You know what his response is? God's king laughs. He laughs, showing his great power. He knows they have to give an account to him, and he knows that his just wrath would destroy them. And in his appointing, he is declared as son. And commentators would say this is showing a connection of royal themes, saying, today I've begotten you, you are a son. And that son is gonna be given the nations as an inheritance, which shows us our mission as the church to get the gospel to the nations. And then all rulers, all nations, all peoples are reminded that they should find their refuge in this king and serve him with fear. And so see what's happening. 
what we see here is a kingly reference to Jesus' anointing as high priest. He's not just priest, he's also king. This is different and better and truer than anything we have ever seen before. But the main point of Psalm 2-7, as applied in Hebrews 5, is to show that Jesus was appointed as son, just like the other high priests. And then the other Old Testament reference continues this point. Look at verse 6 with me. As he also says in another place, you are a priest. I love when he says another place. It's just like, ah, somewhere in the, you know, you guys have read it. Um, says another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so this quote comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. And we do need to deal at least lightly with this random name of Melchizedek. Maybe a lot of you are new to your Bibles, even maybe some of you have read your Bible a lot, you were like, Melchizedek, what is going on with that name? I will tell you, come back in like five weeks, because Hebrews 7 is a whole chapter about Melchizedek. So I'm not going to be able to go through all of it right now, but we are going to deal with it briefly. So, just like I did for Psalm 2, I want to give you the realities of Psalm 110 so you understand this in full. It shows all of God's enemies are going to be his footstool, that everybody gives an account to God and you can't defeat our God. And then it shows that our coming priesthood is eternal. And even though the immediate context of this psalm is talking about David's kingdom, the obvious fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. It highlights the final judgment of God and how this king is the one to whom everybody gives an account. But the main point is that Jesus is a priest forever. Unlike the other priests who died, Jesus died and rose again to never die again. And one commentator says that what this shows us is that Jesus, being after the order of Melchizedek, points to the fact that Jesus himself was sovereignly chosen by his father, just like Melchizedek was in his strange story. And I know I'm putting a lot of little feelers out for the strange Melchizedek story, but it really is that interesting. And I'm going to get back to that in Hebrews 7. But what we need to see now is this idea of the Melchizedek story shows us that Jesus is the eternal priest, not a temporary one like the old covenant. And so, quick summary before we look at Jesus' priestly ministry in the next couple verses. Jesus was appointed by God, the Father, to be king, called son. Jesus was also to be king high priest in his anointing. This was prophesied and foreshadowed by the old covenant priesthood and by these psalms that show the true royal nature of our high priest. All right, verse seven. Here we go. In the days of his flesh, so what does his earthly ministry look like? What does his priesthood look like? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And so here's what we see the person and work of Jesus being all about. Verse seven, that first phrase is so important. We've already gone over this briefly. In the days of his flesh. It is so easy to gloss over these phrases, but it's pointing to something incredible. Do you realize this? The son of God has always existed. Jesus Christ was not created at Christmas time. It's so easy to think that, that, you know, you know, Jesus was created, but he had always existed. He is God, but he put on flesh for us. In the glorious plan of God for your eternal salvation, God the Son puts on flesh. So we're going to take a step even deeper, but I think this is so important for you to have steel in your soul whenever you are tossed to and fro by the cultural winds. You need good theology. So here's a big old theology word for you, okay? Hypostatic union. All right, 
You can jot that down. Um, if you want to talk about it more later, we can, but I want you to understand the hypostatic union. Here's what this means. I know you're thinking, that might not mean anything to you, but it actually means everything to you. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Truly God, truly man. Not 50-50. Not a flesh shell with God juice poured in. Okay? It's a weird, sorry. It's a weird <laughs> visual. But it, that wasn't in my notes. Uh, I, I want you to understand when we're talking about the hypostatic union, we're not talking about some masquerading. This is one person, two um, natures, divine nature, human nature. And this means a lot of really good things for us, but I wanna keep it specifically anchored in his high priestly work. It's amazing. Remember, the high priest in the old covenant offered gifts of worship and sacrifices for sin. All of this meant to point us to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' high priestness, not only does he represent us before God, he is the sacrifice. And the hypostatic union makes that fact explode with joy for you. As our final and perfect high priest, Jesus is the perfect go-between mediator because he is both God and man. How else could he perfectly bring, for all time, bring us to God? Think about that. All the other men died because they were sinful, but the God-man was perfect the perfect go-between. So when we consider this truth in light of Jesus being our final sacrifice, it's beautiful as well. In order for the human debt of sin to be paid, a human had to die. So Jesus became man to pay that debt off for us. But there's no chance a mere human could ever be the perfect sacrifice. So it had to be a different type of man, a God-man, a hypostatic union. So God became man in order to be the only perfect sacrifice that could actually both satisfy Oh my goodness, if you would understand this. Satisfy the just wrath of God and offer the forgiveness that he freely offers us. That's only possible if the hypostatic union is true. Two natures, one glorious person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, that's who you follow, and you should want to love him more. Our goal of going through books of the Bible verse by verse is not to sugarcoat things and leave you with a couple inspirational ideas. You need to understand this. And it's not for the sake of building your mental theological library. We want you to fully know the God you love, and we want you to understand reality. So verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So when God became man to do his high priestly work and to be our sacrifice, to come and save us, we learn about what that meant. Look what he does. He offered up prayers and supplications, literally begging and asking for something. And how did he do it? Passionately, literally with loud cries and tears. I don't know if you ever prayed that way. You ever prayed loud cries and tears? It's a passionate man. And he prays these to his father, who we learned could save him from death. And Jesus was heard. His worship was true and pure because he was perfect and had sinless reverence for his God. Now, it is true that Jesus prayed his entire ministry on earth, and it's also true that he intercedes for us now, but it's clear that this verse we are talking about is the moment of the most gut-wrenching prayer possible. This is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane choosing obedience to take the cross for you. Don't you love this? Adam ruined humanity in the garden when he was tempted by the serpent and sinned. 
but Jesus Christ will start his march to redeem humanity in a garden after starting his ministry by being tempted by the serpent and not sinning. He's going to the garden to redeem what went wrong in the garden. So I just want you to see this narrative for yourselves. If you've ever read the gospel narratives, I I would love for you to do that, but I'm just gonna read this, make a few comments, because I want you to see the loud cries your high priest was doing for you. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Other narratives would tell us that his was praying so passionately he would literally sweat drops of blood. So what in the world is going on there, and why does it matter for the Hebrews' high priestness in 2022 for us? Here's why. The God-man Jesus Christ was experiencing the deepest agony ever, realizing that he would not only die, but face the wrath of his father. And he chose to submit to the cross for his father's glory and for our salvation. Jesus Christ perfectly desired God's will, even as he faced the real, morally appropriate human response to not wanting to be treated unjustly and murdered. In his prayer, he was praying to be saved from the death he knew he would have to go through in resurrection. That's what one commentator taught me this week in studying this. He's talking, he's praying that there would be um, deliverance from this death. This is yet another mystery of the hypostatic union. This verse ends with saying he was heard because of his reverence. But do you realize this is the glorious gospel for you right in front of you? The answer to this prayer was, paraphrase, of course, we'll have this, but it was, what happened was, it was God's, his father's will to crush him so that he may raise him again three days later to reconcile sinners to himself. And you, if that's you, if you're in Christ, that's for you. That's the glory of the gospel right in front of us. Jesus Christ, our high priest, willingly gave his life by dying on the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place so that in his resurrection, he could do all the work necessary to bring every single person who would come to him by faith into salvation. These are realities that are true for us. Verse eight and nine, oh, eight through 10, excuse me. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest, there it is again, after the order of Melchizedek. So a few things here to clear this up before we land the plane. Son of God learned obedience through what he suffered. The agony of the cross, the wrath of his father, and in my study of this this week, um, commentary help, what it's showing here is he was learning the obedience because he was literally learning it through the experience of doing it. Jesus was sinless, so he didn't need to learn because he was being disobedient. 
but he learned it in the moment as he was perfectly fulfilling what he came to do. And the same idea is at play here when it says Jesus was made perfect. Okay, it's not saying that he was never not perfect. It means that he wasn't, that he had to finish the qualifications of what it would take to be the perfect high priest by his perfect, resolute commitment to obey and forsaking every temptation um, along the way to the cross. And then the passage ends showing once again that he was appointed and designated by God as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which once again shows us this once-for-all sacrifice, this priesthood is forever. And then, title of our sermon, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is where I want to land our work on this passage tonight. Jesus Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so you should be asking, what does it mean to obey the gospel? To repent and believe. That obey there is not meant to make you think you have to figure out how to become sinless yourself. The ones who obey Jesus are the ones that repent and believe that he obeyed perfectly in their place. But it's important to note that Hebrews always wants to make clear, obeying Jesus is a life change commitment not a one-time yes to repent and then you don't care how you live anymore. We must recommit by grace over and over again to obeying Jesus as we continue to repent and believe on our way to glory, even as you see more of your sin. And so, Ben, if you wanna come up, get ready and lead us, I wanna leave you with one more angle of his, of his humiliation of putting on flesh and then being exalted to this. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, should be on the screen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, here it is, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is for you. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, he took the form of a servant as your high priest. He can deal with your ignorance, your weakness, and your waywardness, and he will deal with it with gentleness. He was the sacrifice for your sins. He died in your place. And in his resurrection, in his exaltation, his work was finished, but he sits at the right hand of the Father to continue making intercession for you as your great high priest. That should change everything for us. And the old covenant points, it, points us toward it, Jesus fulfills it, and by his grace, we get to live it out and know it now. Let's stand and sing.